Web 2.0. Innovation. Trend. Collaboration. Software. Metadata. Got the world turning as fast as it can? Hear how technology can help, legally speaking, with two of the top legal technology experts, authors, and lawyers, Dennis Kennedy and Tom Mile. Welcome to the Kennedy Mile Report here on the Legal Talk Network. And welcome to episode 181 of the Kennedy Mile Report. I'm Dennis Kennedy in St. Louis. And I'm Tom Mile in Dallas. In our last episode, we took a look at change management. While researching that topic, I noticed that Google searching on change management didn't really bring me to the best information or what I really wanted when I did that search. And then I heard a podcast about a very interesting, well, at least to me, new approach to searching and a tool called Omnity, O-M-N-I-T-Y. I thought it might be a good time to revisit the world of search engines. Tom, what's all on our agenda for this episode? Well, Dennis, in this edition of the Kennedy Mile Report, we will indeed be talking about search engines and uh, how they might have changed since probably the last time we talked about it on the podcast. In our second segment, we'll be talking a little bit about tech gift lists, including our own. And as usual, we'll finish up with our parting shots, that one tip, website, or observation that you can start to use the second that this podcast is over. But first up, uh, we're going to talk search engines. Uh, I, I am finding that about once a month, on cue, Dennis complains to me that search is broken, uh, that Google is no good, and so right on cue, here we are. We thought that it might make sense to confront these frustrations of Dennis's head-on and take a look at the current state of internet search engines. You know, in preparing for this, I've got to say, I was a little bored. I find that I get what I need from search engines, so I find that I might be the curmudgeon on this particular podcast. But Dennis... Are you sure, really, that before we get started, that the issue isn't more about your need to improve your Google skills than it is about the search engines themselves? Well, I think that's a partial answer, and I, I do notice some changes that I do when I'm searching these days. And so rather than do the routine, simple searches, I'm using a lot more of the advanced tools, especially time framing and searching for certain types of documents and, and using more sophisticated search terms than I have in the past. And I was reflecting on you kind of being bored by this topic, and there's many things that you are overly modest about, Tom, that you'll deflect when I compliment you, but your search engine skills are legendary, and I think even <laughs> you, would, you would agree with that. So I, I think it's sort of, you know, one of the reasons you're bored with search engines is because you're so good at them. But I sort of my contention, or one of my contentions, is that that normal sort of search, the simple search, just doesn't really seem to be helpful. And, and we were talking before about the example of where you're just saying, hey, I just want to find like a list of uh, some reviews that will tell me like the best electric razor to buy. And, and that seems like it's a lot harder to do these days. So, so that's one thing I've noticed is that with Google, I'm definitely moving to more of the advanced tools. Uh, so I, I think my search skills always can use improvement, but I, th I think I've done a little bit of work on them. Well, I, you know, I have to say, and I don't know about my search skills. I remember when I used to talk about internet legal research, I, I seem to recall I had a newsletter about that at some point in time. And the thing that I thought that, that described the way that I look at the internet is what makes it easy to search on the internet is having a good idea of what you're looking for uh, beforehand. And the problem is, is that, you know, when you try to search now for an electric razor, there's just so much stuff out there. And we're going to talk 
talk about clickbait and linkbait and other websites that may not have the level of quality. But I think that part of it is about having a good idea of what's out there to begin with and begin to get a general idea of what you can trust. And, and that's why for me, search isn't it's not a huge big deal for me, but part of that's because I don't think that my search requirements are tremendous. Uh, you know, a lot of the time I know a little bit about the resource that would have what I need and I can go right to that site and bypass the search engine entirely. A lot of times I use Google really as a bookmark manager because I can't remember the URL for the site that I'm looking for. So I know exactly what I want and it's often the very first result. You know, for me, I've, I have to say that when I search on Google, I usually find what I need on the first page. Very rarely do I go to the second page. And frankly, when I do, I think it's because my query probably could be more advanced. I, I definitely use the date limiter. I definitely search for file types. I find that's very useful. I don't know that that's a, I think that's really more a subject of how powerful search has become, giving us the ability to look for those things, um, rather than the fact that search is more difficult. Yeah, I think I go back to a conversation I had actually many years ago talking about just the mathematics of search. And so if you use a term like electric razor or change management, I mean, basically, we're searching on a database of, I don't know what, bazillions of yeah. pages to search. So, so the mathematics of saying, oh, we're going to come up with an algorithm that finds like the best items on those two words, as you get to more and more pages, you can see how it's going to be less and less successful. So the algorithms change and, and there's a bunch of, of different approaches. And so I think that's part of the reason that you want to go to, or I tend to go to more advanced search tools on Google, some of those advanced search features, I guess. And the other thing is I also realize, as you were saying, Tom, that I kind of have these other strategies I use where if I, I might be doing search in Evernote where I've kept a lot of stuff, I might be doing search inside Feedly, I might be doing search of just podcasts in my in my podcast app, Overcast, you know, so, so there are other places that I kind of constrain uh, what I have and then I go into sort of known areas for me, either that I've kind of curated myself or I, I've done some sort of limited areas. So that's one strategy I use. And then I, I guess to go back to Google, what, what I've noticed in doing preparation for this is I see things that to me are uh, make it a little difficult for me. I think there is a recency bias in Google. You were talking about your legal research newsletter, and I was tempted to just do a search for that because I think it would be exceptionally hard to find these days because it's an older item. Definitely, you when you do searches where you see people have done excellent jobs of search engine optimization, you've called that clickbait and other things, but you see that it's results that are not exactly what you want. And then the search algorithms do change a little bit from time to time. Well, so I'll come back to your recency bias issue and, and I'll say certainly all of those, not just recency bias, but, you know, search engine optimization and changes to the algorithm and the fact that uh, the search engines that you use are specifically 
finding, uh, you know, targeting a specific way of displaying results to you for a particular reason. And you may not know what that reason is. You may not understand what their thinking is and why they show it to you. But I think it's enough to know that that's the possibility that it happens. And so don't take for granted what you see at the top of search results. Understand that there's a reason why you're seeing information that way. And it may be due to a number of different things, not simply because of how you phrased your particular query. But I would argue, in terms of when we get to recency bias, frankly, I would say that that's, I see that as more of a good thing than a bad thing. Because when I use Google, I want to find recent information. If I use the date limitation on Google, it's more frequently to say, show me something in the last month, or in the last three months, so I can get the most recent, if I, you know, if I was looking for the best electric razor, I'd want to know what somebody said more recently to capture all the new equipment rather than what somebody said a year and a half ago where those things may be out of stock or obsolete by now. And so I think that date range thing works both ways. It One, it helps you find things current, uh, but it also says, you know, if I want to find research from 1996 or from 2002, I can still do that using that date range finder. And, and I think that that's a tremendous advancement from where we've been in the past on being able to narrow down specific dates that you might want to find information. Yeah, and I think that sort of my perception is skewed a bit lately because when you look at our our next topic about uh, you know tech giftless. So if you're doing this type of search that's going to give you that information, I really notice there are a lot of ads. And if you remember back, as I know you do, Tom, that. Before Google, there was a search engine called AltaVista, which was really good. Uh, but then it sort of just became just full of ads. And then Google came along. It was just so clean and pure and, you know, great results. And I do searches now where I go, oh, my God, Google's turning back into AltaVista. Do you get that sense, too, or is that another one of my overreactions? I think it's a little bit of an overreaction, but I mean, we have to remember that first and foremost, Google is an ad company, and they've always been an ad company. That's where they make most of their money these days is from advertising. I have trained my mind around Google's ads, and when I get search results in, I have trained my mind to search out the ad button next to the top search results and automatically skip over those things. I'm just used to doing that, and so I guess I know that, and I've seen articles before where people say, that they're advertising that search engines sneak in is a little bit more devious than that, and they try and sneak it in in different areas. I've generally found, if we're just talking about Google, that they're pretty upfront about it, that they have a couple of, of ads at the very top. Sometimes they'll put ads off to the side, um, but they're not trying to trick you into clicking on an ad um, because they label it right out. Here is an ad. So I think that they, um, one, they're an ad company, but two, they tell you they're an ad company, uh, and they don't don't try to be tricky about it. Okay, so I wanted to talk about sort of three trends that I see with Google that to me are kind of are really kind of interesting. So one is that I th I think we're starting to see impact of mobile search on search engines. So think of the different ways that you might do search on a phone as opposed to typing it into you know, google.com on your laptop or, or desktop. 
That's one thing. The second thing I think is going to become extraordinarily important is the impact of voice search, which I think gets you to more of a question-oriented approach to search and more of a, a natural language approach. So I find that I'm starting to, in Google, type in more in the nature of a question, you know, like, what is the best razor for a man, you know, that sort of thing. And so in this odd way, I think you get better results going to that question approach, which to go back to the old days of search reminds me of ask, you know, ask Jeeves, ask Jeeves, you know, is Google becoming, is that the best way to do Google is to treat it like ask Jeeves. And it could be because I I think that as you use voice more and more, you'll start to have that more conversational approach and do things in terms of questions. So that's another trend. And the third one is, is one that we've mentioned a, a bit before, but I sort of have aggressively not allowed Google to do a lot of tracking on me. So I've opted out of those options and, and the way that it, you know, has the history of my searches and stuff. And I think that probably has a, a pretty negative impact on some of my search results and also brings out the point to me is that the search results you get when, if you and I are both doing sort of the same Google search, I think that unlike what many people might think is that we probably don't see the same results. Oh, that's absolutely sure true that we don't see the same results. And and so let me think about all of those things. I kind of have a little bit to say about each one of them. Mobile search and voice search are both huge trends for the future. Uh, you know, according to Google, nearly 60% of all search comes from mobile devices, which means where the search goes, then the money goes. And mobile search is going to be a little bit different for you because um, it's probably going to be more likely weighted to local search. It's going to assume that you're looking for something around you. And so it's maybe weighting itself to things that might be in your area, depending on what you search on. Google is also going to, and I'm just using Google as the example here, is also going to prefer mobile-friendly websites over others, which means it may not be sending you the most relevant results first because of that, um, because it, it's being sent to a mobile device. And what I think is really interesting is that Google announced, I guess it was either last month or a couple months ago, that they're actually going to roll out a separate mobile search index that's different from the desktop index and actually more up-to-date than the desktop index. And I think that this is a bet by Google that mobile search is going to be the winner in the long run. I think that's going to be a huge trend. Now, with voice search, I think that to me, I see a difference. Of, I, I've always asked questions into it, typed questions into a search engine, I, and I think it goes back to Ask Jeeves. The difference between typing in questions to just typing them into Google is that Google and other tools with voice search still have challenges understanding the context. And like you say, they're more designed to answering questions and give specific answers and not necessarily a list of results. If I type my question into Google, I can look through the results and see, oh, look, it caught something. It won't maybe not give me the direct answer, but it catches something that is close to the answer. If I'm just going to ask a question to my Echo, or if I'm going to ask my Google Home a question, and I need to absolutely have the right way of asking that question or else it's not going to know how to answer the question. I think we're still in early days with voice search. It's it's incredibly powerful, but I think it's still lacking in that you have to know exactly how to ask the right question to get the information that you need. And then I think, uh, you know, you'd ask the question in our prep notes about is your refusal to let Google track your searches hurting the utility? I think the short answer to that is yes. Obviously, the more stuff that any search engine knows about you, the better it's going to 
to deliver results. You know, there are times that I go back to a search I want to run again, and Google actually always seems to know what I'm looking for. It, it actually pops up in the autocomplete, the actual terms of the last search that I did on that particular thing. And, and then I think in broader terms, this is something that you have to come to terms with about search engines or, you know, if we're talking Google in general, um, that the more Google knows about you, the better. And some people who kind of are all in on Google, I happen to be one of those people. I'm not worried about it. It tends to be more useful to you. If you don't want Google all up in your business, then maybe this isn't an option. But I, you know, I really like getting a notification that I need to leave for, in 15 minutes to get to the airport in time because it knows from my Gmail that I that I bought an airline ticket for that particular time. I like the fact that it can tell all of this information. I don't feel like it's an invasion of privacy because some of this stuff isn't particularly private to me. But I think that the same thing is true with the search engine. I think that the more information that you let it have, the more valuable it becomes to you. And reluctantly, I'm coming to the same conclusion. So the next item we had was Google alternatives. I mean, basically, I just go back to Google all the time, no matter how much I complain. But there are alternatives, and people do experiment with them. So being DuckDuckGo, those sorts of things. But I think ultimately, for the general search engines, it's still a Google world. Agreed. So I want to talk a little bit about specialized search engines. And I use you know, some examples of way I use different search things. And I've always been intrigued. Sort of the one thing about electronic discovery that's always intrigued me the most was the really interesting approaches to search that are used inside the uh, e-discovery tools. So it's things like Dolphin Search from days in the past, uh, use of AI and other things like that, and just sort of really more context-driven search and those things. So I think those tools have started to be, have always been interesting to me. And so that's what got me sort of really fascinated by it when I heard a podcast about the search tool called Omniti, which is sort of like an even a, a newer trend in that. And so they're going on the notion that if you do machine learning and uh, you're trying to do search on certain terms, there's just too much. You can learn something there. But if you do search on certain terms, there's just too much out there. And so they taking this approach where you can do something where you say, hey, I want to find, I have like a whole document and I want to find other documents and information that are like my document. So what if I just use that whole document to search off of and then let their algorithms figure out what's unique about that and some of the patterns in there and identify other documents, we'll call them our pages on the web, that are really similar. And then what what might that tell me? So it's sort of like I sort of abdicate responsibility for crafting this tailored search term and I kind of let, you know, the machine go out and find things for me. And so I'm intrigued by that in, in certain – there are certain cases where – it can be really interesting. So you think if like inventions, patents, you know, things like that, where you say, I want to find something that's like what I'm doing or to see if there's something like that. Um, so that's intriguing to me. So I was playing around with that today, Tom. And, and so what I decided, and I'm curious to see what you do, is that one, it's not very fast, that it's really useful, I think, for in certain cases where you're looking for something new, where you're going, I want something similar, but not as a tool where you would do general search, I don't think. And I think it's especially interesting in the patent area. But it's something as a lawyer I might want to keep an eye on as something that could be potentially valuable over time. Tom, your thoughts? 
So here's the part of the podcast where I become my most curmudgeonly, but I guess I'm going to put a qualification and say that I, I still think Omnity is a cool tool. I like the possibilities of it, but I'm going to make the argument that this is not a new trend. This is a an old trend with a new spin because we've been talking about the idea of semantic search and the semantic web for a long time now. And I think that this is a tool that's using new technologies, machine learning, AI, and other tools to improve semantic search and to make it easier to find things. Now, in that respect, I think it's really powerful. I agree with you. It's a little bit slow. I'm glad that it has a free version for the public, uh, although you got to pay more to get more advanced features. And I also agree that it's probably not good for general search, and here's why. I tried a general search on it. I am recently been needing to understand the law in Maryland with regard to lead-based paint disclosures. Uh, I did the search in Omnity, and it brought back a lot of really interesting information about what lead-based paint exposure was and some federal rules around it, but not one thing from Maryland, not one. And then I did the, just to see, I did the search in Google and literally the first five results in Google gave me the information that I needed. So I think that the use case for a tool like Omnity is closer to what you describe than what I was looking for at it. And so that's where it comes back to the idea that you've got to know the purpose for the tool that you're going to use. You've got to know that the scalpel is for something pinpoint and the sledgehammer is something broad. And so if, as long as you understand the scope and the limitations of each tool, then you're likely to be more successful with it. So I imported the script for this, this episode. And there was just a wide range of things that I would not think were particularly relevant. I mean, one thing that was, was the Wikipedia entry for podcasts, but how useful that really is, you know, I don't know. But when I limited the search to inventions and, and used another topic, I was going, I could see how this could be really useful where you're, you're thinking about something and trying to think of things in new ways and saying what, I'm not sure what this is like. And so seeing what, comes up may kind of stimulate some thinking. So I think it has a certain use. Um, and, you know, it's like any of these other specialized tools. If I think you're right. You, the right tool for, for the right job is where you want to go. So I guess, Tom, I, I think that search is important. It's going to be increasingly important as there's more and more stuff out there. But I, I think that we are all going to have to get smarter about it and realize that there's a set of tools it'd be good to develop that will make sense for each of us. And that's probably been where we've been at for what, like, 20 years maybe but been a while. but it feels you know it feels like more so than ever it's a great time to take a look and and say am i relying on the old tool set that's not really helping me and maybe it's time to add some new things and also what's important is understanding, I mean, you, you talk about how the search engines, especially Google, are more powerful than they used to be in terms of the functionality. Uh, we'll put in the show notes a couple of links. You know, Google is really good about teaching users how to power search in Google. And, and there are a lot of useful videos out there that are helpful. I'll put some links in there. They've got it for both education and just for the average person who wants to learn more about it. Uh, you know, going out and, and maybe not taking classes, but looking at some videos on, on how to do this really can help up your search game no matter what tool you happen to use. Before we move on to our next segment, let's take a quick break for a message from our sponsor. Looking for a process server you can trust? 
ServeNow.com is a nationwide network of local pre-screened process servers. ServeNow works with the most professional process servers in the industry. Connecting your firm with process servers who embrace technology, have experience with high-volume serves, and understand the litigation process and rules of properly effectuating service. Find a pre-screened process server today. Visit www.servenow.com. And now let's get back to the Kennedy Mall Report. I'm Tom Mile. And I'm Dennis Kennedy. Well, it's that time of year where you can find tens or dozens or hundreds of blog posts and articles seemingly every day listing the best tech gifts for the holiday season. Now, I like to read those like everybody else and get ideas, but sometimes I get a little frustrated when people will just list items that they don't really use themselves because I'm not really sure how helpful that is to me. I, I like more of the cool tools approach to these lists. Give me a list of stuff that, that you like that really works for you based on the experience that you actually have. So even though I'm not like a huge fan of doing my own lists and have some reservations about the list I see, I thought Tom and I would uh, go ahead and jump into the game ourselves and list of a few of our favorite items for um, for this year's tech gift list, both the things we like and things we want. Tom, what's the top of your list? So I'm going to go with, uh, I've got five things I want to talk about. I'll try and run through them pretty quickly from uh, from cheapest to most expensive. So at the low end, I truly recommend a premium subscription to Todoist, my favorite task manager. I have to say that I recommend it completely, and they now just added a new smart task rescheduler, which tries to use some artificial intelligence of its own to figure out when you should reschedule um, the tasks that you haven't completed yet. And it actually is scary accurate about how it does that. It's 30 bucks a year. It's really a fantastic uh, task manager. My next one will be the entertainment center that I think is kind of the best overall, and that's the Roku box. If you're using an Apple TV, I'm sure you like it. Um, but if you don't have anything, I really recommend there, there are several different iterations of Roku. There's a, a streaming stick that you can carry with you. I take it with me and use it in hotel rooms when I can't find anything interesting to see on TV. Um, I have a box at home and the, the number of channels that you can watch and make available is truly astounding. You can I get to Hulu and Netflix and the majors, HBO and Amazon, but uh, there's you know old-time westerns and old-time comedies and just uh, all sorts of shows. The prices there are between $30 and $130. Headphones are now Next, I am right now really enjoying my Jaybird X3 wireless headphones. Um, they're $130. I love having the fact that I don't have to connect anything to my phone when I am walking the dog or when I'm walking around the house, that I don't have anything that's going to catch on anything or worry about the tether. On my wish list, um, and, and I'm waiting for them to come out, are the Bragi. I guess that's how you pronounce it, B-R-A-G-I. They're just tiny little earbuds that are going to be very similar to the Apple AirPods that are on their way out. They're also $130, and I'm looking forward to trying those out when they show up. And then my last one that I want to talk about really is the most expensive, but I've been using my uh, Google Pixel XL phone now for about a month, and it is quite simply the best phone I have ever used. Um, I think that uh, you know the differences between Android and iPhone in the past has been that, that iPhones just tend to work just fine, where Androids have the potential to be a lot more powerful and a lot more customizable, but have had performance 
performance issues. I think that line has been blurred now and that uh, this just works. And it's a beautiful device, a little pricey, starting at $650, um, but the iPhones are about the same price, so I think completely worth it. All right, that's a lot on my plate. Dennis, what's on your wish list? Well, you just remind me I should have the AirPods on on my list, at least my personal list. Um, I sort of have a, a bit of a reading theme this year. So uh, big fan of Kevin Kelly. Uh, we talk about him a lot in uh, the Cool Tools website. But just two books of his. One I think is just required reading for anybody who listens to this podcast. And it's his new book called The Inevitable, which talks about uh, some really important technology trends. And Kevin also just announced that he's doing like the last printing of the cool tools book which you know is a couple years old but god what a great book with lots of good ideas for tools that work for people so those two books and then then i've been become really intrigued by kindle and unlimited which is a way that i think you pay 9.99 a month and you get to read a bunch of different things in kindle so that to me seemed like a good way to start to consume books as I move more and more into the ebook world. The other three items I have real quick are if you're a presenter, especially I've really grown to like Snagit, which is this great way to to grab screenshots and to do uh, simple editing, cropping, uh, blurring images if you need to blur things on the screen. Really handy tool for anybody who does presentations. Password manager is essential these days if you don't have one. I like one password and to kind of come full circle to where Tom started. I also recommend the uh, a task manager too, which for me is OmniFocus. I paid $99 for it, which is, you know, an unheard of amount for me. But if, if you're in the David Allen getting things done world as I am, OmniFocus is just a, a great software tool to help you keep organized with all the tasks that you have in front of you. Now it's time for our parting shots, that one tip, website, or observation you can use the second this podcast ends. Tom, take it away. So uh, my parting shot this week is a podcast. If you listen to uh, the Radio Lab podcast from, I think that's WNYC, it's a public radio uh, podcast about science. It's a terrific podcast, but they've recently started a new podcast from the same at WNYC that's called um, A More Perfect Union. And it is uh, a podcast for lovers of the Supreme Court where they take a particular case or an issue uh, pending before the Supreme Court in history and they really examine it. And I think that the podcast podcast that got me really hooked was one called Object Anyway, and it was about how the Batson Challenge came about for jury selection, and really the fact that although this was a tremendous decision in Supreme Court history, uh, it, it may have had a completely opposite effect on how juries get selected these days. Um, so if you are uh, interested in podcasts, interested in listening to uh, news and stories about the Supreme Court and specific decisions, a more perfect union is a great choice. And mine follows the Cool Tools themes. I noticed that uh, Cool Tools, uh, so that's cool-tools.org, they're putting together uh, lists of some of their favorite tools from the year in the form of structured and targeted holiday gift lists. And uh, I look forward to seeing those as, as they come out. So highly recommended by me. 
So that wraps it up for this edition of the Kennedy Mile Report. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. You can find show notes for this episode at tkmreport.com. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast in iTunes or on the Legal Talk Network site, where you can find archives of all of our previous podcasts. If you'd like to get in touch with us, please email us at tkmreport at gmail.com or send us a tweet. I'm at Tom Mile and Dennis is at Dennis Kennedy. So until the next podcast, I am Tom Mile. And I'm Dennis Kennedy, and you've been listening to The Kennedy Mile Report, a podcast on legal technology with an internet focus. Help us out by telling a couple of your friends and colleagues about the podcast. Thanks for listening to The Kennedy Mile Report. Check out Dennis and Tom's book, The Lawyer's Guide to Collaboration Tools and Technologies, Smart Ways to Work Together, from ABA Books or Amazon. And join us every other week for another edition of The Kennedy Mile Report, only on the Legal Talk Network.